0: Morning. Like Ben said, we are in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? As I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, and there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord." When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and when I put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will take place in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the very word of God.
1: The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most important doctrine of the Christian faith. I realize that such a superlative claim can easily be misunderstood, taken by some to suggest that we don't really have to believe in the virgin birth after all so long as we affirm Easter. That is absolutely not true. But what I am arguing Is that the resurrection is the one doctrine of Christianity that gives to all other doctrines their essential value? As one New Testament scholar has written, take Christmas away, and in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the front of Matthew and Luke, nothing else. Take Easter away, and you won't have a New Testament. You won't have a Christianity. As the Apostle Paul says, you will still be in your sins. So I will risk the misunderstanding to say it again. No Christian doctrine matters as much as the claim that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that in order to be a Christian, you must believe that on the third day he was raised from the dead. There can be no compromise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus cannot be Lord if he's still dead. But if he's alive, he, has, he reigns. Now, in order to be a Christian, You must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. In order to become a Christian, you need to know what that means. We need to press into the reality of what Easter Sunday means, its implications for your life right now. The Apostle Paul also writes to Christians in 1 Corinthians 15, telling them, let's think this through. Let's think about the implications for our lives right now that Jesus on that first Easter Sunday walked out of a Palestinian tomb. Okay, so what what exactly do we mean? What does the resurrection of Jesus from the dead entail? I find that many of us Christians really haven't come to grips with the implications of the resurrection. We are muddled, to say the least, in our convictions on this matter, but be of good cheer. So, too, were Jesus' own disciples. Coming down with Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus told three of his disciples that they were to keep silent about what they had just witnessed until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And Mark tells us that they did. They kept the matter themselves because they became preoccupied instead with another question. What exactly, Mark nine ten, would this rising from the dead mean? What exactly are the implications for such a thing? Were it, in fact, to actually be true, Let's join with these disciples on this Easter Sunday and ask ourselves the same question. And the text before us today, Ezekiel 37, the first 14 verses, is no doubt one of the Old Testament texts, one of the scriptures that those disciples would have had in mind as they became preoccupied with that question. What would this rising from the dead mean? Uh, and one of the reasons that they would have thought about this is because for Ezekiel, right here in this vis- vision, he has a vision of a, of a resurrection. And Ezekiel even tells us what that implication is, what it means if someone were to rise from the dead. So what does it mean? What, what does the resurrection of the dead signify? What are its implications for your life? In 2023 in Oklahoma City, here are three for us to consider this morning. If Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, as the Bible says, then first, the end has ended. Second, the curse has been lifted. And third, the new creation has started. The end has ended, the curse has been lifted, and the new creation has started. So, the first implication I'd like to bring to your mind this morning is this the resurrection from the dead means that the end has itself come to an end. The end has ended. Let's ponder this for just a moment from Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 37. All right, so let me state the obvious. You can't have a resurrection from the dead unless you first have death. And death is about as synonymous with the end as one could possibly get. Lights out. Death arrives with a tangible sense of finality and irreversibility. And by the way, they knew that in the first century, just like you enlightened 21st century people know it to be true. Dead people simply don't come back to life. Death is the end. That's certainly the sense that Ezekiel describes in the first two verses of this chapter. Just take a look at it. He is brought out by God to a valley that is full of bones. And as he walks around among them, he notices Not only the great quantity of them, there's very many, but also he noticed their particular quality. What kind of bones were they? Dry bones. Very dry bones, he says. So whoever these bones belong to, the life that once animated them has long since been gone. Not only is there no more flesh on the skeletons, there's also no more marrow in the bones. Ezekiel's vision is a vision of the end. And we've all heard stories of people who are said to have been dead and then brought back to life. We usually call them in our day near-death experiences. Even though some of those who have experienced them are adamant that they were in fact dead. But let us be clear whatever else resurrection from the dead might mean, it cannot in any way be confused with those kinds of experiences. That's not what happens in Ezekiel, and that's not what we can claim happened to Jesus either. Death, real and final, is a requirement for resurrection. And since death comes as an end, then what lies beyond death is a mystery. Anyone who can tell you what comes next after death deserves to be heard with the same skepticism as the one who says that they know what lies beyond the boundaries of the universe. Unless you've been there, how could you possibly know? Throughout the Old Testament, Sheol is the name for the place of the dead, and its etymology, Hebrew scholars say even to this day, just like what it designates, is uncertain. The King James Version translates it about half the time it appears as grave, and the other half with the English word hell. Now, that latter translation is problematic Because it's the righteous and the wicked who go down to Sheol in the Bible. And for those of us living after the medieval era, that's all of you, hell puts all kinds of concrete images in our mind that are not intended by that Hebrew word. So grave is probably the better word to translate it because it reminds us where the dead person is and leaves us with not much else to say about them. That's not because there's nothing else that the Bible has to say about the present status of those who have died. But it is because, in fact, the Bible doesn't spend much time talking about that. And unless you have died, truly died, until you have come to the real and final end of your life, where you don't die again, you really can't say much about the afterlife either. If you're watching a movie, you're caught up in the story, and then all of a sudden the words, the end, show up on the screen, it's a bit silly to then say, what happens next? Unless, of course, there is or is going to be a sequel And then the question, what happens next, can be answered probably in the same way that Ezekiel answers the question that God asked him. Did you notice? God basically says to Ezekiel, what now? What's going to happen next? And so Ezekiel says, you're the director. You're the writer of the story. Uh, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's answer is, oh, Lord God, you know he throws the question back to God because from a human perspective, the answer would only, could only be, nope, lights out, the end. But the same God who created life in the beginning out of nothing, who made a material world come alive with the simple words from his mouth, let there be that God And that God alone knows all possibilities. So, maybe? (laughs) But it's really hard to imagine, isn't it? Because if the dead, the truly dead, can live again, then that would mean that the end that comes with death has itself come to an end. Death itself would be no more, and can you even begin to comprehend a world in which death itself has passed away? It raises all sorts of questions. What would a world like that even look like? Who has ever seen a body, real flesh and real bones that do not grow old and do not succumb to death. Who has ever seen eternal life? Certainly not us who live in a world of death. We look around and we would say with Ezekiel, clearly the end of death has not come, right? Right? right. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then that is what it would have to mean because resurrection, get this, is not another way of talking about the afterlife. We've got to be clear about this, Christians, or we have lost the power of the gospel. Resurrection is not another way of talking about Sheol, Resurrection is not what has already happened to people who are right now presently dead. Easter does not directly tell us anything more about what it is like to be in the realm of the dead, the experience of your soul while your body decays in its grave. What it does tell us is the hope of life that has decisively finally defeated death itself. When the end has come to an end. When there is now a way to be alive in the world that God made with death no longer hanging over you. That's what we mean by resurrection. That is what we mean then when we say, On Easter Sunday, he is risen. And it is what is promised to all who trust in the risen Christ. It is what is meant, actually, Clyde said this earlier, and he was way ahead of you guys. It is what is meant by Christian baptism. Thank you, Clyde. Somebody listens to me around here. It is what is meant by our union with Jesus Christ. Paul writes this in Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. In order that, Paul says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might walk in newness of life. So don't you know, dear Christian, dear brother and sister, that the resurrection of Jesus means that you too, by virtue of your union with Christ, symbolized in your Christian baptism, you too, right now, already share in the resurrected life of Christ. He not only died for you, he was raised for you so that you might live in his world without death hanging over you. So this takes us then to a second implication of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, what Jesus' disciples surely believed, as they coming down the mountain, they're like, what, this? what does this rising from the dead mean? It's not because, as faithful Jews, they had no concept of resurrection. That's not true. Like most Jews in their day, They understood, they believed that there would be, in fact, a resurrection of the righteous at the end of all human history when all God's people were raised from the dead. They had that concept in their heads. But what they were wondering as they were coming down that mount is what it would mean if just one of God's people were raised, not at the end. But in the middle, that's the question that they're pondering as they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Because this is just certainly not what a good Jew would have expected. It's not what they had gleaned from their Old Testament. It's not what they had understood from Ezekiel 37 and passages like this. Would it just mean that the end has come already for one but not yet for all? You know? Good for him, but the rest of us just got to keep on waiting. Well, here's the thing. If, in fact, that one person who happened to be raised in the middle of history before the end has come, if that one person just so happened to be the promised Messiah of Israel, then it would mean something not just for him, but for everyone that he represented. And if that's true, then that Messiah being raised would mean, secondly, that the curse of sin has been lifted. It is over. A thing of the past. Again, I'm taking my cue here from Ezekiel's vision. In verse 11, you saw this, in verse 11, Ezekiel is told that the bones that he sees... Who do these bones belong to? We actually are told, right? The bones that he sees, God says, this is the whole house of Israel. So the implication in Ezekiel's vision is that the entire nation here first has been wiped out. Just think that through for a moment. What happened? What happened to them? Commentators observe that the picture that is displayed here, and Ezekiel would have picked this up, he's walking along these bones, he sees them, and when God says, this is the whole house of Israel, then the picture that's being presented in Ezekiel 37, did you catch this? Is the nation of Israel defeated in battle. We have a, a valley, which is the proper site for an ancient battlefield. In verse nine, the deceased are said to have been slain, It's not a natural death. They've been conquered. And when they are resurrected, Ezekiel specifically says they were an exceedingly great army. So do you see the picture? This is what Ezekiel's picking. He knows he's walked upon a battlefield, and the whole house of Israel has been defeated, has died. But first, before he sees them as a resurrected, exceedingly great army, they are Here, clearly presented as a vanquished foe. Not a single one of them left. The whole house of Israel, right? The interpretation says. Who defeated them? Who vanquished them? Who slayed them? It would not be wrong to say, from your history books, Babylon. You know the story. Ezekiel knows the story. This is happening right before his eyes, right? we've, been, we've been studying this book together for a while, so that wouldn't be a wrong answer. Or if not Babylon, some other world empire, because that's exactly what's happening in the news of the day. But all of that history, all of that history must be seen through the theological lens of Israel's covenant disobedience, they have not merely been defeated by Babylon. Guess who got it right here, at class? My brother Clyde. They have been absolutely defeated, conquered by their own God. Not just God, the God of Israel has conquered, has defeated, has slain the whole house of Israel. And the reason, of course, is because God is faithful. Did you catch that? The reason is because God keeps his word. God keeps his promise. God keeps his covenant. He is steadfast in his covenant faithfulness. Israel has here received precisely what they deserve, or what we might call the wages of their sin. Further evidence that this is a scene of a covenant curse is as seen from the fact that this defeated army of Israel um, lay like bones on the surface of the ground. You see the, the picture that Ezekiel is displaying here? Now, the lack of burial is a sign not only that this is a conquered army, but it's also a sign of God's covenant curse. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Verses 25 to 26, God warns Israel that if they violate God's covenant with them, then he will cause them to be routed by their enemies, and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. It was becoming increasingly clear to Ezekiel and his fellow exiles that they were currently experiencing In exile, nothing less than the enforcement of God's own covenant curse. Verse 12 summarizes their realization that this is what was happening. Look what what they say. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. You see that? To be cut off means not merely to die. It's far worse than that. It means to be under a curse, to be under the emotional weight of knowing that you are separated from any degree of joyful human existence. It is to be cursed. Some of you can identify with this kind of lament. You feel as if you are under the curse of God himself for the things you've suffered in this life. Your life feels like Total misery. And death starts to sound like a relief. You're not alone. The Psalms are filled with laments like the one we read here in Ezekiel 37, verse 12. Sometimes the heaviness of life can make one despair of even life itself. But what the Old Testament anticipated was the day when, in the words of another one of Israel's prophets, the prophet Isaiah, someone would come and would come under the curse in order to lift it off of your shoulders. Isaiah refers to this one as the servant of God who would himself be, quote, cut off out of the land of the living, truly dead, stricken for the transgression of God's people. That's Isaiah 53.8. Isaiah says there's, there's, there's coming a day when someone who would, will come and take on the full covenant curse, who would bear our griefs, Carry our sorrows, be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. About whom does the prophet say this? The Ethiopian official asked Philip in Acts 8. Remember the story? He read Isaiah 53. He said, Is he talking about himself or about someone else? And then Acts 8, 34, 35 says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. So on this Easter Sunday, let me tell you the good news of Jesus. Because if Jesus on Good Friday had his life taken away, then what does it mean? What's the implication for you? That on Easter Sunday, he had his life given back by resurrection. This is not simply good news about Jesus a neat little historical abnormality that happened to one person in history. It has massive implications for all of us. In Ezekiel's vision, what happens to the army of Israel is what God wants him to proclaim to everyone the army represents. When he says the whole house of Israel, the exiles are like, well, what about us? And the whole point of that is to say, if, if the great army of Israel has been vanquished, what happens to the people the army represents? So... God says, here's the implication for you, exiles. What happens to the army of Israel is what God wants him to proclaim to everyone the army represents. I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land. That, that, that's, a, that's a clear word of encouragement, right? You're sitting in exile. Babylon has just wiped you out, destroyed your city burned the temple to the ground, uh, our hope is lost. We're done. Israel will be no more. And God says to them, no, just like they have been raised from the dead, the army has been raised from the dead, so also I will raise you. I will bring you out of your graves. It's a clear word of encouragement, meant to give hope to the exiles who felt like we must be under the curse. God says here, I will come to you and I will open your graves, not... So that another family member who has died can be buried in your ancestral tomb. But so that the God of Israel can pose as the ultimate tomb raider. And the treasure that he is after, as he comes to rob your grave, the treasure that he is after is your body. That he will Raise from the grave. In other words, what this rising from the dead means for us, listen, catch it, is not the assurance that we will find a way to adapt to the misery of living under the curse of sin. It is the assurance that the curse of sin and death itself will be unwound, reversed. Resurrection is not a way of saying, well, be of good cheer. It's not so bad being dead. Sheol is not such a bad place after all. Dust will learn to be happy as dust. No way. Don't you dare preach resurrection like that. It means that creation itself, including your created body, will be reaffirmed, remade. And so also will you, your physical body, reaffirmed, remade by the same resurrection that Jesus experienced on Easter Sunday. That's what resurrection means. And we better preach it right. But There's one more thing that we must emphasize this morning. And it, it all comes down to timing. I think we Christians just have a hard time knowing what time it is. And I don't, like, that's not a shame for those of you who walked in a little late. We're glad you're here. We all have a hard time living in the reality of what time it is. You see, as encouraging as Ezekiel's vision might have been for the exiles, as hopeful as resurrection might sound to us as we look forward to the day, you're like, oh, that sounds really great. One day, one day we too will be raised. What wonderful day that will be when when, just like with Jesus, our own resurrection will be in the rear view mirror. But I'm asking you this question: What does it mean for you right now, united to Christ, when Christ's resurrection is in the past, has already happened, in time and space? I'm, I'm, I'm saying you don't need to wait and think about and it's glorious, and you should think about that day when he appears, and we're all raised, we sing about, I get excited, you get excited. Singing these songs fires me up. Like, I love it. I got to be careful I don't lose my voice while I'm singing. Unless I'm not preaching, and then I just lose it. I get all excited. just Hasten the day, oh Lord. Yes, hasten the day. However, however, what is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus for you this side of the grave? What hope might the resurrection of Jesus give us in advance of our own resurrection? And the answer is this. There's a lot of answers, but here's the answer from Ezekiel 37 The resurrection of Jesus means that God's new creation has started. The end has ended, the curse has lifted. So, what comes next? What happens now? What happens now is a new creation has started, and here's the good news of the gospel. You can be a part of it. You can be a part of it. In Ezekiel's vision, the way that the dry bones comes back to life sounds not only like a resurrection, but did you pick up on this? It sounds like a new creation, a re-creation. Did you notice it? Probably only Clyde noticed it. So let me just show it to you. This is good reason. I think if you picked it up, it's for good reason because that's what resurrection would have to mean. If Jesus has been raised, we're, we're talking about not just a resuscitation, a coming back to life to die again, but a passing through life or through death into a new life, then the only thing that can mean is the promised new creation has already started. It's already broken in. So Ezekiel begins to do his prophesying to the bones, and look at what happens in verse 7. The bones come together, joined by, how do you say it, Jod? Sinews. See, the the ESV right here, just, I, I looked the word up in Hebrew, and you know what it means in the Hebrew lexicon? Tendon. I know what that is. So, tendons. Tendons. Flesh, skin but verse 8 says there was no breath in them and so God says part 2 prophesy again and the breath of life comes and invigorates them does that sound familiar do you read your Bible I mean like if you do a Bible plan you got this one it's in the second chapter this isn't tucked away in Leviticus. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, God formed man of dust from the ground and then what? Breathed. breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. As it was in the beginning, so it will be, Ezekiel tells here, in the new beginning. God's new creation finds life only by the infusion of the very life breath of God. So what then will it take for you and me to be a part of God's new creation? How do you get in on it? The resurrection of Jesus means that A new beginning has started. God's new, he has started again. The Genesis story has started all over again with Jesus, like 2,000 years ago. And you're sitting here today saying, well, how do I get in on it? And I'm here to tell you, it's going to require a dramatic act of God's own breath. You know this, right? Breath here and spirit are the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. This is the breathing of God's own Holy Spirit bringing us to faith in Christ and uniting us to the one who has already entered into God's new world. If anyone is in Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5:17, you tell me what he says. New creation. In fact, in the Greek it's if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's not just Jesus, but if anyone is united to Jesus by the very breath of God's own Holy Spirit, then you too are already, right now, a new creation. You have entered into God's new world. The old has passed away, Paul says. Behold, the new has come. So get this. To be a Christian means to have the very life breath of God within you. And the evidence that you have this life breath is that you believe in the only one who has been there, who has passed beyond the end into a new creation in this world, radically transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. But what does it mean to believe? Of course, it it includes assent. But it's not just that. As clear as the allusion to Genesis two is in Ezekiel thirty seven, actually the story is probably more explicitly tied, not to Genesis two story, but to a different Old Testament story. Do you know which one? I bet Clyde knows. I love this brother. New okay, let's keep, we'll keep crying. Look at, look at verses 11 to 14. The interpretation of this vision here is set in a specific way where God says he will come and, and open the graves and raise you out of the graves. And then he says, and lead you out of your grave and into a new land, into your land. What story is that? That's it that's it. What did you, if you go back to the Exodus story and you're just like, I want to get in on this new creation that God's doing. Can we use that term? Then what do you have to do? <laughs> if you want to be a participant in the Exodus, then you know what you have to do? You, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't, Get with your neighbor and say, hey, let's, let's come up with a plan. You better follow the Savior. You better follow the Deliverer, the one who has come and said, I'll get you out. You got a lot of doubts, I'm sure, about Jesus. It's okay. You know those, those, those uh, Israelites living in Egypt were probably like, Moses? This guy? He's going to lead us out. They had that problem, right? So if you struggle with those kind of uncertainties, that's part of the story. But you're only getting out of Egypt if you follow Moses. You follow the deliverer. You can't just remain in Egypt and say, I believe in the Exodus. You got to get up. Leave behind your slavery and move forward into the promised land. The New Testament speaks of what Jesus accomplished for us on Good Friday and Easter Sunday in Luke 9.31 as a new exodus. He is the Savior. He is the better Moses who leads his people out of the world of sin and slavery and into the new world of holiness and freedom. Sound good? It is good. You can't just believe in him. You have to follow him. You have to be a disciple of Jesus. But what does it mean to do that, Ben? And here, I've got to be careful. Because at this point, it's so easy for us to begin to impose our own ideas of what Christian discipleship entails. You you have your things, right? Like a a disciple of Jesus does this and doesn't do that. But guess what? Some other Christian, their list doesn't quite match yours. So I gotta be really careful here, and I wanna just say, Our Lord, our Savior, our Deliverer is fully capable of making plain to all his people what he requires of us. So you're not answering to me on this one or to any other brother or sister. But I simply want to stress as we come to the end of this message that the promise of resurrection, the invitation into God's new creation is the call, is the summons to be the true human being that God intends for you and me to be. He's inviting you out of Egypt, out of your slavery and in Christian discipleship to become a Christian, to become the truly human person that God loved, made to be in his world. Look at the end of Ezekiel's vision, again in verse 10, When he sees the resurrection, the restoration, he sees an exceedingly great army. Presumably, they are now standing at attention, don't you think? I mean, before they were rebels and God crushed them. So now they're resurrected. And what are they doing? I just, I don't know. I wasn't in the military, but they're standing at attention. They are ready to do the Lord's bidding. The resurrection that has already broken in on our dark world, then, is full of implications for those of us who would dare to be a part of it. Easter Sunday does not mean that one time in history God did something miraculous in the world but doesn't seem to much care about doing miraculous things for it anymore. And it certainly does not mean that we shouldn't care about this world after all because we're gonna get out of here and go live in heaven. You know better. What this rising from the dead means is that there is already right now a power that has been unleashed in the world, a power that is able to transform and heal this world precisely in those places where healing seems impossible. And that's the invitation, the marching orders, if you will, for those who would call themselves a disciple of Jesus. The Bible regularly calls the God of Israel the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, He resurrects us into his new world to do his bidding, to go into even the darkest of places so that, well, let me just say it this way, to be a Christian does not mean to try as hard as possible to be good. It means to learn to live in God's new world that has started with Easter Sunday and which we have entered into through our union with Christ. That's what it means. Let us then follow him as he leads us through prayer and in community to work the soil that he has given us here to cultivate, all for his praise, all for his glory, and all with the assurance that comes at the end of the great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. In the Lord, your labor will not be in vain. You give a cup of cold water in my name, by my spirit. You're getting your reward when the fullness of the kingdom has arrived. So let us then get to the work, all with the assurance that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. After all, he is risen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you Well, I'm trying to pray on behalf of all my brothers and sisters here. So I know some of us are coming before you and we are just, we're just in doubt. Can the story be true? It sure doesn't feel like the end has ended. It sure doesn't feel like the curse has been lifted. I look around and it sure doesn't look like there's a new creation that has dawned, that has begun. Can it be true? You know, Lord remind us that on Easter morning, that first Easter morning, that's exactly what God's dis- Christ disciples were saying. Really? No. This can't be true. Mm-hmm. But then there was simply no denying it. What's the explanation? For a Palestinian tomb that is empty. Where did the body go? And when the disciples. By your grace. Came to believe. They went around and proclaimed to anyone who would hear. Christ is risen. The end has ended. The curse is lifted. The new creation has begun. And we got to work this out. This is how we be. This is how we be a Christian, by believing that Christ was raised from the dead, this is how we become a Christian, by believing Christ has been raised. So we ask you, O oh Lord, once again on this Easter Sunday, remind us of your body broken, your blood shed, and then glory of all glories, your body raised in newness of life so that we too might participate in the beginning of your new creation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.